And I want to welcome you to the Prophetic News radio broadcast. And I want to remind all my listeners that we are moving from Blog Talk Radio over to Spreaker. And that's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R. And the program will still be available on iTunes some of the other podcasting platforms. So I'm planning to go off of Blog Talk Radio October 1st if everything works out because I'm still trying to work out all the details to move my 13 years of programming (laughs) over to the new platform and as you know, it's hard to get support on some of... They used to have really good support on Blog Talk Radio. They don't have it anymore. And I'm just trying to work out some of the details with uh, my RSS feed, which now has only a year's worth of programs. And I'm trying to find out what happened to... Uh, the 13 years, if you go to the Blog Talk Radio page, my home page, you, you can still get all the programs that were done over these many years. And there's been so many of them, and there's been so many different topics that we talk about. And there's still so many things to talk about. Every week, something different is happening in our country and in the church at large. And so, anyway, just remember that we most likely will not be doing any new programs on Blog Talk Radio starting October 1st. But also, we have our website for you, propheticnews.com. And if you want to email me, you can email me, susan at propheticnews.com, if you need to contact me about anything. And... We also have our YouTube channel, Prophetic News and Greedy Preachers TV. Also, our two books are very well-documented book about Paula White. Some things that people don't know about Paula White is she probably wasn't really married when she said she was married to her third husband. And all the documentation is there in the book. Paula White and Jonathan Cain claim to be married in 2014, 2015, but yet she filed her income taxes as a single woman. So even though they claim to be man and wife and they were living as man and wife, it doesn't look like they were legally married according to the 
tax documents because you can't file as a single person and be legally married. In 2016, they did get a marriage certificate. So you can see all the documents. I document everything in the book. And uh, it's all there to see. So I did contact, they, they did this documentary about her husband, Jonathan Cain. And, and I know he's trying to make in, inroads into Christian music and trying to be known as a Christian singer-songwriter. So they did this kind of a documentary about him on, on this uh, YouTube platform, and it's a Facebook platform, and it's called I Am Second, and they do testimonies. So I had questioned the people there as to why they didn't vet this man to find out what kind of a Christian is this guy anyway that uh, he tells people to watch porn from his wife's pulpit and he attends meetings with his wife for the Mrs. Sung Young Moon who claims to be the Holy Spirit and then he's making the sign of a cross on himself there on video as he's looking over some information about the dead Prime Minister Abe now, born-again Christians usually don't make the Catholic sign of the cross on themselves. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, they were nice enough to respond to me, which I appreciate because I contact people and, and I ask them questions about some of the people that they promote as Christians. I don't believe for one minute that Paula White is a real Christian or her husband, Jonathan Cain. I, there's just no evidence of it. They, you can talk all you want about Jesus, but the Bible says that you will know them by their fruit. And we're supposed to know people that labor among us. So when people are, are, are uh, as questionable as these two people, then you have to doubt that they are really born again. Now, of course, we know that born-again people are not perfect, and they, they, they can sin and do things that they shouldn't do. We know that. And usually when somebody misses it, they do repent, especially if they're a public figure, they repent publicly. And I don't see any of that from these two. They're, they're greedy. They take over a million dollars a year, and, and there's financial documents in my book too about Paula White that you can look at in 2014 she took over $700,000 in salary and benefits from her church that was in 2014 so you can imagine what she's taking and Minister John is taking and her son Brad is taking it's got to be well over a million dollars so these people are not in it because they love Jesus they, they have financial motives for the most part. So I think, th I think this book is very, very important because of the fact that Paula White is the spiritual advisor to the former president of the United States. That's important. We don't want these kind of people advising presidents. 
you want you want uh, somebody that's an uncompromised man or woman of God to be an advisor to someone who's in such an important position and uh, who also, Paula White also advised Donald Trump to speak for Mrs. Moon, the cult leader, and he has, and you can see those videos on YouTube. You can see them on my channel. There's, there's other people that have put them up where he's been a speaker for Mrs. Sun Young, Sun Young Moon. And, of course, Mr. Moon is now deceased. He claimed to be the Messiah. We know he wasn't. But he said that Jesus was a failure. And she says that, too, that Jesus failed in his mission because he died on the cross. So Mr. and Mrs. Moon had to pick up the slack, and they have to finish the job that Jesus didn't finish. So how could anybody... It's it's just so insane that we can't... I can't even believe it myself. This is important information that needs to get out on a massive scale because the church is being deceived. And you can see... You can see uh, there's still people out there that say Donald Trump is a Christian and you, you still see these people on the Kenneth Copeland channel and they're praising Donald Trump and, act, and acting like... He's some kind of a messiah figure himself. When you have to question these things, you have to put these things out to the public. This is what's happening behind the scenes. Maybe you don't know about it because it hasn't received the national attention that it, that it needs to receive. They need to know who the, who the woman is that's the spiritual advisor, and they need to know who the man is that they're going to uh, support if he runs again for president. And in good conscience, how, how can Christians support this man knowing some of these things are going on behind the scenes? We can't. What comes first, the politics of the United States or the politics of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ? That comes first. The church comes first. And the gospel comes first. There was something interesting that came out last week when I was watching the Daystar program that Joni Lamb and her family there. And I watch this program every now and then just to see what they're saying and who the guests are. So they happen to have uh, Jack Hibbs on, and he's a pastor from California. He's been very active in politics. So they were talking about the pandemic. And I, I don't take this thing lightly because I've, I've had quite a few friends that died from the coronavirus. And, and uh, just friends that I have from the internet, some of them, one of my friends that I've known since the 1980s passed away from the virus. But some other people that I don't know personally just from the internet, and someone even died two months ago from 
having this thing, horrible thing. And they were talking about how he kept his church open, even though the government said that they had to close the buildings and not have these meetings with hundreds of people, possibly thousands of people in a small enclosure where they're next to each other. Well, they were making a big deal about the fact that he kept his church open and they weren't going to let the government tell them that they couldn't meet. Of course, we know that the church is not a building. It's okay to go to the building and to have meetings and to receive instruction and to have fellowship. There's nothing wrong with that. The Bible doesn't say you have to go. There's no scripture that says that every Sunday you have to go to a building and it's only there that you can meet with God because God's in the building. We know that God is everywhere. He's not just living inside that building and on that property. And they were so happy about the fact that they could meet. They were going to meet no matter what kind of a pandemic it was. It was, da- it was a dangerous pandemic. And if I was a pastor of a church, and I'm not, but if I was, I wouldn't keep my building open. I wouldn't subject my people to this deadly horrible virus that people really suffered from. They really suffered. Just to prove a point that the government's not going to tell me that I can't meet in my building. I think it's arrogance. And whether we can meet in the building or not, that's not going to destroy the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the church and we are not a building. And if they close up every building, we're still going to preach the gospel. So anyway, he was very proud of the fact that he kept his building open and he exposed his people to this deadly virus. And he says that he thought about closing up his building, but he says the Lord told him, the Lord Jesus told him that He did not have the authority to close his church. And that that was the Lord Jesus' church, and Jack Hibbs did not have the authority to close it. Now, that was an odd statement, because the Lord, first of all, the Lord Jesus isn't going to talk like that, because he never referred to his church as a building. 1 Corinthians 3. 16. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Here's another scripture. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? So the Lord did not tell him that. It's funny how people can say, Jesus said this, Jesus said that, and it contradicts his word. 
Most of us don't know what the future holds. We don't know if, the, if in the future we are even going to be allowed to meet in buildings. So it's really the duty of the leaders to prepare their people to get to know Jesus for themselves and to read the Bible for themselves and to be able to learn about God for themselves and not to be dependent on some other human being to teach you what the Word of God says. There's nothing wrong with Bible teachers. It's, it's wonderful to be a Bible teacher and to minister the Word of God. But it's up to each and every one of us to know God ourselves and to know what the Scripture is saying, to be a good Berean and to search the Scriptures to see if the things that people are telling us are so. We've, we've uh, as, a, as a body of believers and as the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, some of us have come to believe things that aren't scriptural because somebody is preaching it on TV or on the radio or on the internet. And because people don't search the scriptures for themselves, they believe crazy things like they believe this crazy Nephilim thing where angels came down from heaven and these spirits made blood and, and uh, they made body parts and then all of a sudden they were impregnating women and having children. That, that's a long, tall tale if I ever heard one and it's a total distraction. I, I don't know why people even waste their time on that. It's, it doesn't matter And there's more important things to think about, like what's going on in the world, the new world order, the great reset, the taking away of civil liberties, of taking away people's phones and their computers and going into their homes and taking all their documents and, and, uh, Facebook reading your private messages and reporting you to the FBI. Just like this week, they took Mike Lindell, the pillow man, they took his phone. Now, I don't agree with Mike Lindell 100%, but I don't think they have any right to come and take his phone away from him. For what? And to surround his car when he's at a restaurant, in, they came, they were in the back of his car, on the side of his car, on the front of his car. Like, where was he going? Breaking into people's houses, coming with guns blazing and arresting people for trespassing. And uh, then they, they uh, subpoenaed 30 of uh, former President Trump's associates and they took their phones and, and took their computers. And what is going on? It's really, really crazy. And I think we have to be concerned. But the devil has people chasing around after Nephilim, after angels making babies with humans and creating these giants and it's a distraction. 
And it's a lie. <laughs> it's an outright lie. There's no scripture to back it up. And anybody can take a scripture out of context. They can take one scripture and they don't uh, look at the context of the whole Bible. And they can say, well, this is, a, this is the truth and this is a doctrine because here's one sentence in the Bible. You can't do that. You have to look at everything in context when it comes to Bible study. That's what we did when we were in Word of Faith. When, when I was in the Word of Faith movement, which I was in for 15 years, I've been saved since 1981, and I got out of Word of Faith in 1997. But we would take, now, I wasn't doing it intentionally, and most of my friends were not saying, let's find something that we can deceive people with. We didn't. We believed these, the Word of Faith doctrines. And, but we would have these Bible translations, like uh, 26 Bible translations. Well, you could look at 26 different Bible translations, and you could take a scripture and you can see that there'll be all different wording in the scriptures. And it can change the meaning of a scripture because there's too many different Bible translations. And I found for myself, and I don't get into arguments over Bible translations, I'm not going to do it. But I found for myself when I was coming out of Word of Faith, I said, I'm going to stick to one Bible translation, and that was the King James. And that's all I'm going to read, and I'm not going to read any other books during that time period. I think it's helpful to read to read other people's books if it if uh, they're doctrinally sound. But anyway, that's what I did to try to get my doctrine straight. And uh, because I found in Word of Faith, they could take a scripture and they could make it say what they wanted as far as to make it go along with their doctrine. So we have to be careful of those things, that we don't twist scripture. We, we are in some very troubling times, and we have to get prepared. And it is up to the, to the leaders of the churches to prepare the people for the things that are coming on the earth. And it's happening fast. It, Look at the price of food. It's, I was buying safflower oil, and I was paying, um, this was like about five months ago, I was paying $5.99 for the bottle. I went to buy it a couple of weeks ago. It was $9.99. Oh, <laughs> that's almost double along with other things that I was buying at the grocery store. So food, for most people, food to feed their family and their mortgage payment is the, is the most expensive thing they have to buy. So you think to yourself, if there's a family of four, and all of a sudden you're paying almost double for food, that's quite a big jump, along with the price of gas that almost tripled from what it was, and then the, uh, your mortgage rates are going up, so 
Yeah. They're really sucking it to us, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. So we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared for anything. And then you think about all the millions of people that are flocking into this country. And there's nothing wrong with taking in immigrants, but they have to come in legally. They, they like to say, oh, this is a country that was founded by immigrants. Yeah, but my grandmother and grandfather, and on both sides of my mother and father's family, came on boats from Eastern Europe, and they came through Ellis Island, and they had to be vetted. At one time, it, it was very important to know who was coming into the country. And that's the way it has to be done because you have chaos now. You have more crime now. When you allow people to come in that are desperately poor and they have nowhere to go, they don't have a place to live, they don't have money to eat, they don't have a car, it's not that easy to get started when you have nothing. So I saw the effects of it when I was in South Africa in the, in the 1990s. The crime was so bad there. You, my, the people that were hosting me, they wouldn't let me. I said, I'm going to rent a car and I'm going to drive myself around. They said, no, you can't do that. It's not safe for you to be on the highways by yourself. They weren't kidding no, they weren't kidding. We were in uh, Johannesburg at the Rama Church there. I was staying with the security guard and his family on the grounds, and it was about 9 o'clock at night, and they had sensors in the ground all around the house because people try to break in there, and... He told me that uh, when people would go to church on Sunday and they would park their cars in the church parking lot, that people were stealing the cars while they were in church. So the crime was so bad. And, yeah, somebody came right to the front of the house. Well, he knew it because he had the sensors in the ground. He knew when people were walking up. And he had to go out with his rifle and uh, the people left, whoever it was. It wasn't, it, it wasn't a good person that was coming up. So, and uh, one family that I knew, they had, her husband was shot, and they got into the house by cutting a hole in, in the roof and coming in. Because they were letting, at that time, when I was in Cape Town, my host took me to the shanty towns and they showed me where people were walking in from other side uh, from other parts of Africa and they weren't being vetted they, they were just letting everybody walk in like they're doing here now and they had a section in town where people would just put up like a little piece of tin or they'd put up a piece of material with a stick and they were living there there was hundreds of people living like that in these little makeshift towns that they were setting up. And also, if you had, say you had an empty lot next to your house, 
these people could come and squat on the lot and, and live there. Now, that was back in the 1990s. I, I can imagine it's much worse now, but we're having the same things here now. We're having the same things here. You can't allow chaos to rule. There has to be law and order. There has to be laws that followed, and you saw what happened this week when DeSantis sent the illegals, and they call them migrants. I'm like, where did this word come from? Because they used to call them illegal aliens, which is what they are. They're not migrants. They're not aliens. They're illegal aliens. And alien means you don't belong in that place. <laughs> You're a stranger. And uh, so he sent 50 people to Martha's Vineyard and Oh, well, they couldn't keep them there, even though they have signs outside their store buildings where we, we are for, elite, uh, for immigrants coming into this country and we don't discriminate. Well, as soon as those 50 people showed up over there, they didn't want them. They said, we don't have any room here. And uh, one of the news reporters said last night that at Martha's Vineyard, there's actually, there was actually 100,000 empty hotel rooms. <laughs> because, of course, the season is over, Labor Day there, so everybody leaves, and it's only the residents that are there. The tourists are gone, for the most part. Oh, but they didn't want them. They weren't going to put these people up in their hotels or in their houses, so they bust them over to some uh, naval, some uh, army base or something on Cape Cod, and, uh, but they got a little taste of what it's like in some of these border towns where these people are crossing over by the millions and these towns are being overwhelmed with these people and they're sleeping on the street. It, it, this is not humane treatment of people. It's not humane that these people are walking for weeks and for months at a time and they're being subjected to criminals on the way over here and they're dying as they're coming they're drowning they're getting baked in these trucks 50 people were found dead in a truck over 50 people and someone uh one of my internet friends has a ranch there in texas and they find dead bodies on their property how would you like somebody walking on your property at night and you don't know who it is? But that's what happens at, at these border towns. When I was in uh, the Southwest back in the 1980s, I was staying with a, an elderly lady there and she was telling me, well, this was in 1980-something, and she was telling me, well, at night people walk on my property. You lead... This has been happening for a long time. It's nothing new. We should be able to control our borders and not give people the false impression that they're just going to come here and the, the people, are, some of these people, when they're being in question, they say, yeah, they tell us that if we go to America, we're going to get a house and a job. Well, you might, but... It's expensive to pay rent. It's expensive to have food. 
and to pay your all the bills that come along with having a an apartment. But you can see some places when you drive around, you see 10 cars in front of the house or 12 cars in front of the house. So you know what's going on over uh, in some of these houses. People have to live with uh, 10 or 20 or 30 people in a house to be able to afford to live there. So it's not easy just to come over and start a brand new life. It's very difficult. That's why they had rules and they had borders and they had applying for citizenship. And then you had, if uh, someone applied for citizenship, they had to have a sponsor. And someone had to say that they would be responsible for these people for 10 years. When I was traveling overseas, I would have people ask me, would you sponsor me if I came to America? Well, no, I wasn't going to sponsor anybody because I... You have to be financially responsible for these people for 10 years. And, and really, the only people that would do that are, are close, very close relatives. Because you usually, know, you usually know what happens when you lend somebody money, especially a relative. You're probably not ever going to see it again. <laughs> Don't lend money. <laughs> you have to give it because you will make an enemy. You know how it is whenever you lend anybody money and then you ask them to pay it back? You, you, and you see it on TV. Like if you watch Judge Judy, they say, it was a gift. They, they lent me the money. They said, I didn't have to pay them back. And they keep harassing me and calling me for their money. Yeah, I guess so because... <laughs> It was a loan. But the Bible says don't lend. And so don't lend money. Don't lend money. It's not your responsibility to uh, pay other people's bills unless you want to give it to them to help them. Because you'll make an enemy. That's what happens. And you're saying, where's my money? And they're saying, I don't have it. I, I have this problem and I have that problem. Yeah, well, we all have problems. But <laughs> so. <sighs> Such is life. But we, we are in for some. And we are in. We are in perilous times. It's not just that we are in for some. We are in perilous times. And now more than ever, we have to trust the Lord Jesus Christ to get us through our battles and to help us, to keep us free from fear. Because if you spend too much time thinking about all this insanity, it can make you afraid. And, of course, Jesus said that in this world we would have tribulation, and we're having tribulation. It's only the beginning of the great tribulation that's going to come upon us. So, we need to be ready. 
we see so many things happening in uh, the so-called church. You see here, Kanye West opens a mysterious private Christian school. Well, I guess that it would be very mysterious. Franklin Graham Samaritan Purse takes in $1.2 billion in revenue. Wow. Amazing. Just amazing. And we, we see so many things happening with abortion and the pro-life movement. There was a, a program that was done last week on Dr. Phil. Now, Dr. Phil is a very questionable character. At one point, he was trying to paint himself as a Christian. And him and his wife were going on Christian television and promoting their Christian books. And, and uh, they were on, I think James Robinson had them on. And I know Joni Lamb had them on. So, yeah, anybody could say they're a Christian. But recently, Dr. Phil's wife, Robin, has she's got a radio program, and she has psychics on her program. Yeah, psychics. And so what kind of a Christian is that? I don't think so. Uh, and then... Dr. Phil, I'm like, is there something wrong with you? I think, I think there's something wrong with you because you don't know when life begins. Oh. Dr. Phil does not know when life begins. Let's hear some of these excerpts from his program on abortion. In 13 states, banned abortion immediately or soon after Roe was repealed, meaning the federal ruling triggers a state law banning abortion to go into effect. Some states are already seeing legal challenges to their trigger laws, and there are more lawsuits likely to follow. No one here is pro-death, and no one here is pro-abortion. The difference is pro-choice and pro-life. Lila, you, you say some things in the predicate of your positions that life begins at fertilization, that science is very clear about that. And you, you have to know science isn't, there, there's no consensus among the scientific community. There is, that, Dr. Phil. 96% no, of scientists not. say that I, life begins at fertilization. If no, you're an in vitro specialist, no, no, you're let, looking to create let, let me, let me a single cell embryo, and then you know you have a new human life. So it is a scientific fact. Well, actually, it's not. Well, when do you when do you say human life begins then? There's well, it doesn't matter what I think. I I, I don't care what I think. What I'm saying is well, the scientific is community does not have a consensus about when life begins. It's simply and that inaccurate. Is, You're sim it's simply inaccurate. That's not true. You can go to the body. A single of, cell embryo is a unique new human life. You can go to the body of scientific literature and you can find neuroscientists who say that it begins when there is a detectable brain wave. But Dr. Phil, in an abortion, if it's not a human life, why do you have to kill it? 
I haven't spoken over you, and you keep speaking over me, and I assume that's because you don't want me to finish my thought, which is, if anyone here wants to fact-check me instead of speak over me, you can go to the scientific literature and query what the definition is of the beginning of life, and you will find that there are different definitions. And it's up to you to decide what you think, but there is not a consensus among the scientific community, and it has actually evolved across time. Before we had sonograms, uh, it was a black box what was going on in there. Then when we got to the point we had sonograms and we could see, oh, you can detect a heartbeat, okay, now, uh, up until then, it was referred to as quickening, uh, when you could feel the kick. Uh, that was the beginning of life, and then we got better technology, and then uh, it started to change. But you say it's at fertilization, but at fertilization, there actually hasn't been implantation. And then once there's implantation, then it, it, this is a process. And uh, it's all I'm saying is there's not a consensus, and you're saying there is, and that's factually inaccurate. We can we can agree to disagree, but I will say you know when I was but pregnant. But the literature with, doesn't disagree. Well, we can I, we should look it up. It's ninety six percent of scientists have agreed when surveyed. But regardless of that point, I think the question is you know we know deep down when you're pregnant there's a new human life. You know that's why it's so devastating for Nancy. Our miscarriage was so devastating. We all know that deep down these are these are human beings. That's why it's so contentious. Mm. And listen, we, do we acknowledge that all humans have human rights? Because I think what your your question well, is I, about I, is I agree about with personhood. a lot of your points. I'm just I, saying it comes down to when that life begins. But I, that, I don't think Nancy saying. or others here are okay, um, um, The real argument we hear we're having is about choice and a person's right to choose what is best for them, what is best for them regarding family planning, what is best for them regarding their bodies and their ownership. And when we are listening to this debate, we're constantly getting it back to about who's deciding what. If you determine for yourself that's when life begins, that is fine for you. But someone else may determine something completely different. And this is where, from a pro-choice standpoint, we're saying it is not for us to decide for anyone what they believe, how they believe, but they, they have options. So I think we need to really pay attention to what pro-choice is really arguing, what we're really talking about. It's about truly, if we are giving people the right to choose, we're allowing them to make the best decisions for themselves, for their bodies, and for their families. Do you have a story or a question for me? Click the link in the description. Yeah, I have a question for you, uh, Dr. Phil. You don't know when life begins, and you want to point me to some documents? So, then why do they fertilize an egg and the sperm in a dish Sometimes they do this, and they fertilize those things. And, of course, it's living. They fertilize it, and then they freeze it, or they implant it. And if it's not living, if it's, if it's dead and, it, and it's not living, then why are they implanting it in somebody so they could have a baby? These people are crazy. They... They want to tell you about science, but they don't 
have any rational thinking. They don't have critical thinking. Even this guy, that's a, he's supposed to be an authority on things and a trained doctor of psychology, but he can't tell you when life begins because it's a scientific consensus that they, they can tell you when life begins. And then you have the uh, pro-choice people saying, it's up to the individual to decide when life begins. So if there's no life there, if they're not really pregnant with a baby, then why are they having an abortion? It, if they don't think there's a life there that they don't want to bring into the world. Yeah. Who's the author of confusion? The devil. So it, these people are weird, strange, very, very strange. Here's another part of the uh, conversation that they had on this program. Say actually a ton to say actually. Okay. Um, I would say though, in this particular case with Nancy, who I feel absolutely terrible for, Lila, I really feel like your views. You just want to legislate evil. That's really how it feels when I hear you speak, especially when you're talking about a ten-year-old girl who was raped. I'm sorry, and um, to hear you say that, you know, they should just have it anyway is disgusting. I really think you're a traitor to your own. And I will never be able to agree with you. There's nothing you could justify to say that she should have to carry it to bury it. There is nothing you could possibly say to justify that level of lack of empathy. And that's the problem I feel like in this country at the moment, we were founded on the lack of empathy and we've just kept up with that tradition. If, if you have no empathy. Uh, abortion is devastating for, to women's mental health. No one talks about that. The year after a woman has Do an you know abortion, what it's really like the, the year after a woman to have the child. They, what kind of trauma is the that? Trauma that is from the, rape. Somebody? the trauma is from the rape. The child's an innocent party there. The child and is we don't born take out yet. It's not there. We we should not take out generational sin on a child to say there's generational sin and that dad was but an abuser the so the We're child should be killed. Sin at this That's rate. not We're fair to the child. We're talking about rights. And he just yes. said we've been taken a right has been taken away from us. And what is I want to address that because our fundamental human right that we all share in this room is life. It's the first human right. Laws are meant to protect the weak. In a society, who's the weakest? Who's the weakest in the society? A child. The poor. They don't have a voice. They can't speak. A child the in the room. That's or the weak. The but poorest. a poor child would be the weakest. And we're going to keep them that way by and a, making them And a child with disability, listen, kids. whether you live 10 minutes or 10 years or 100 years, you're a human life and you have the right to not be killed. And that's what the pro-life fight is all about. That's what we're fighting for, a culture of life where we provide real health care. You know, abortion is the intentional destruction of an innocent but human life. We can do better right than that. that for a right to choose what? what a right to choose what? Doesn't a woman have a right to do? choose what happens to her body? But what's in her body? There's another it, life know, we're talking about. Let's acknowledge the science. And I would defer to Christian and the experts, when do you but think I will human say life this. You can't just be pro-fetus and not pro-life. Right. Because both, a lot of times we're, we're what pro, we see... Pro-human beings. No, we're pro-human beings. And women deserve better than a lot of these children are born, we all those better. legislators who vote for pro-life when the baby's inside the woman, then do, do nothing to vote to help them with not, health I mean, care, uh, after school care, you know, daycare, yeah, all these things, especially yeah. in marginalized communities. In the back row, in the middle. I'm Corinne. 
Um, you say you're pro-life, but banning abortion hurts so many more people in the long run. So many more people. If you were really pro-life, you would be caring about these long-term ripple effects, about the 10, 12-year-olds that get raped and they could possibly die because their body isn't developed yet, the babies that come out and could be severely underdeveloped, M me who gets raped, you know, why is it? say actually a We live in a crazy world, we really do. People don't want to take personal responsibility for their actions. And consider the fact that there is a baby involved, a beautiful human being who deserves life. And they had a lady on that had a, had some testing done, and she had they found out that the baby was brain damaged, so they recommended an abortion, and she had the abortion, and they were they were saying that the pro life people were saying, and justifiably so, that it's better to go ahead and give birth to the baby and to be able to see the baby and hold the baby. And if the baby dies in your arms, at least you know that you didn't have an abortion, which is very painful for the child in the womb. Very painful. And you have to live with that after. you So... Isn't it better that the baby was born and you had a chance to see the baby and hold the baby than to know that it was ripped apart by a vacuum? And then the, the, the attorney that was there, I think his name is Krupp. You see him all over the place, but Crump or Krupp, I don't, I don't have the pronunciation of his name at the moment, but... Benjamin Crump, I think. And he's saying, well, what about, yeah, you pro-life people, you don't want to worry about what happens to the woman after where she has to have daycare and food and whatever. I, I don't understand this kind of thing where you don't take personal responsibility. My grandmothers both came over on the boat from Europe. They had nothing. They both had 10 children. My my uh, father's mother worked in a factory, and her husband worked. Yet they raised ten children. They weren't on welfare. They didn't say, "Oh, well, we had these children, so now you have to be responsible for helping me raise these children." They didn't do that. They took responsibility for their own actions. And now we have a society where people think that they're entitled. If, if they get pregnant, then it's someone else's responsibility to pay for this child. And it's not. It's not. It's, per, it, it's taking on your responsibility for your own actions. In the day and age we live in, people outside of marriage don't have to get pregnant because... There's such a thing as abstaining until you get married and you have a husband that will stand with you and then you decide when you're going to have children. And 
people that have children have to take responsibility for them. They have to provide for these children. It's not the state's responsibility. It's not your grandmother's responsibility. It's your responsibility. So I, I just don't understand it. it, it but that's the, the job of the church when it comes to the pro-life movement is to lead people to Jesus. Only Jesus can change your mind and, and change your mindset and give you love and compassion for children. I heard something the other day that I, I couldn't believe. <laughs> now, I know some people have to have daycare and uh, different things like that. If they have to, if they can't stay home and take care of their children when they're young and they have to go out to work, that's understandable, but... There was a, a, a lady on one of the television networks, a child of one of the network people, and she, she has a two-year-old. And she said, oh, we sent him out to school, and he has a backpack. We put his backpack on, and we sent him to school. He's two. I'm thinking to myself, like, who? why would you send a two-year-old out to school when there's no reason why you can't, stay home with the two-year-old because you don't really have to work. This person doesn't really have to work. And one of the parents, like my parents did when they had my brother and I, my mother worked a night shift, so we were sleeping when she was gone. We didn't even know she wasn't there. My father worked days. So there was always, we never had a babysitter. We never went to daycare. We always had a parent there to take care of us. And uh, we also had my grandmother and my great-grandmother living with us. So my mother and father made sure that the children that they brought into the world were cared for and provided for, and they didn't expect anybody else to do it for them. So in the day and age we're living in, people don't want to take responsibility for their families, not everybody. I'm not saying that in general, it's, but it, it is happening. And uh, to me, to send a two-year-old out to school, a two-year-old is not ready to leave the home unless, of course, you have to go to work and you don't have a choice. But children are usually better uh, off with their grandmothers or somebody that's really going to love the child and take care of the child because nobody is going to take care of your child like you will. Nobody is. And I just think it's too young. They're too young. I think I read a study one time where they, where they said it was better to keep a child home until they were at least seven if you could, if you could, and educate them at home. And then when they're, they get to be about seven, then they're ready to start making some decisions and things like that, and they might be old enough to leave the home. But if it's at all possible, if you could stay home and raise your children and educate your children, because now you have the school's trying to tell children or ask children what they're doing. You hear 
these testimonies of people saying that, yeah, my child went to school and the teachers keep asking them, how do you feel today? Do you feel like a boy or do you feel like a girl? Who does that to a child? And then they're bringing in these drag queen shows. And I, I didn't know that had anything to do with reading, writing, and arithmetic. Don't you send your children to school to learn how to read and how to add and how to uh, be educated so that they could grow up and get a good job and raise a family and those kind of things. I didn't know that when you were five, you were supposed to ask yourself whether you're a boy or a girl. And these kind of things were, were happening long ago when they started to take away morals out of schools and they wouldn't teach children what's right or wrong like you heard on this Dr. Phil program, it's up to a woman to decide when life begins. There's no morality. There's no right or wrong. It's whatever you deem is right or wrong. But there has to be a right and a wrong. There has to be rules for people to live by because otherwise you have chaos. And we're seeing that. And especially for Christian parents, the, your children are the most precious gift from God. And we are responsible for our families and for the education of our families. The Bible says to train up a child in the, in the way they should go and when they're old they will not depart. It's a big job, but it's it's a it's a wonderful job for and you can they were doing a program last night on the homeschooling movement and uh, the parents were giving their testimonies about how no maybe it's not for everyone I'm not saying it's for everyone but the people that were doing it and did have their children at home and and uh, they were able to establish really good relationships with their children. And they were well-educated, and they, they felt loved and cared for. And that's very important for uh, a child to feel loved and accepted. They might not get that when they're out in school. It, it's very, very difficult, too, at some of these schools where children are bullied, and they're go going to encounter bullies, <laughs> I think everybody probably one in one way or another encountered a bully when they went to school. And it can be very traumatic for a child, especially a young child. So as Christians, we need to set an example for the world about the importance of family and uh, we don't let the devil tell us how to raise our families. God help us. So now in Great Britain, they have a new king, King Charles. And I know last week I was saying that I had a nickname for Camilla, the new queen consort. Imagine that. And I said, I, I call her gorilla. Now, I didn't say that because of the way she looks. I, it wasn't 
meant to sound like that. And some people might say, well, she was making a comment about the way she looks. No, it, it wasn't. Camilla, Gorilla rhymes with Camilla. That's why I said it. That's why I said it. <laughs> I had nothing in my mind about the way she looks. I do have a problem with the fact that they were both married to other people and they were, have, they were carrying on a sexual affair and they were not being loyal to their spouses and this woman didn't even really care about her husband and he didn't care about his wife who was having psychological problems which you can figure out why she was having psychological problems because she found out her husband was in love with another woman even when they were engaged and then when they were married she was finding notes and listening to telephone calls and things from this other woman who didn't care about her and so it, it wasn't a good situation for Diana or for the husband of Camilla and so now she wants to be the queen of the country and they tried to say that it was the queen's idea to make her the queen consort well no it wasn't the queen's idea the queen i don't think had any intention of making her the queen consort it wasn't it didn't happen until about six months before the queen died and you know it was charles's idea it was not her idea to do that because he wanted her to be queen now it looks like now it looks like everybody's going to accept her. I don't think so though. I think after the funeral is over and uh Charles is taking over that people are going to so readily accept the monarchy and the this put up queen Camilla who as far as I know, she doesn't have any royal blood. And uh, she, just because she married him, now people have to accept her as the queen. And they, they said, well, she broke her toe. And she's so, such a wonderful person that even though she had a broken toe, she was carrying on her duties. Well, there was no way that she wasn't going to have her day in the sun there and uh, be beside, beside him, broken toe or no broken toe. <laughs> because she's definitely a social climber and uh, she uh, she's not a nice person. I think of course, now, Harry is supposed to come out with a book, and uh, it was supposed to be released in November, but now they say they're going to put it off until next year. I personally would not write a book about my family. I don't have any skeletons in my closet. I came from a, a good family. My mother and father were wonderful people, and... Uh, they raised us right, my brother and I. And uh, But I wouldn't write a book about my family. But he's, anyway, he's doing it. And so he's supposed to write some things about Camilla, which I think is probably in his, of course, for him, it was his mother 
And this woman was interfering in the marriage of his mother and his father. And this woman caused his mother very much pain, which she did. And she never apologized for it. And then when his mother died, the father wants the children to accept this woman. And then they came out publicly when they got married, Charles and Camilla, and the, and the boys were saying, oh, well, she makes him happy, so we're going to accept her. I don't think they really felt that way. I doubt seriously that they ever really liked this woman or they... Uh, I think they were saying those things to keep their position and to keep their money and whatever. And they weren't really being true to what they really believe. So now it seems like Harry wants to be true to his real feelings about what went on. And uh, then he's supposed to come out with this book about and, and talk about Camilla. So it should be interesting, but I think that some of the nations that they have in the realm, and they say that there's about 15 countries or so that the uh, king will rule over, and already you can see there was some dissent when Charles and uh, Camilla were riding through the streets of Ireland and Wales and people were yelling out things and uh, there's people that don't want the monarchy. So I, I think after this whole funeral is over and the dust settles that there'll be some of these countries that say we don't want the king ruling over us anymore as far as we don't need a monarchy, we don't want to support a monarchy. So supposedly they... They're filthy rich. Now, I've seen some of these palaces over there in castles. I was in Windsor, and it's a beautiful place. Uh, although it is in the path of Heathrow Airport, and it, it is noisy over there at that castle. You, the planes are going overhead. So it's not peaceful. It's beautiful there. It's a beautiful castle and a beautiful town. Uh but uh, when you go into this place and you see rooms full of armor worth millions of dollars, swords, and artwork, and, and uh, then I was over at Kensington Palace in London and Hampton Court. And the wealth is outrageous. They're... they're and all the palaces and the the carriages and the cars and they're they're worth billions of dollars these people the jewels alone are priceless and yet they take a hundred million dollars a year which this figure could be more it could be less but it's somewhere around there in tax dollars from the people to support them so they can have servants and uh, they can lead the royal life. They don't spend their own money. No. Although the, the monarchy does take in big 
big money in tourism. Yes, they do. But yet, they want the public to support them. <laughs> oh. And the people there, when, when I was there, and I took many trips over to the United Kingdom, over 30 trips I took there in the 1990s. And I love the country. I love the people. I, I was in Wales and Scotland and mainly in England. But when you ask people, most of the people really did love their queen. Yeah, they liked having a queen. So that whole idea that the people liked it. But when you look at it in reality, yikes, what a life. You don't, you don't spend your own money. The public supports you. You live like a king. <laughs> yeah. But I think for sure there's going to be some trouble ahead. That people aren't going to really want to welcome Camilla as they are now, how it seems that they're flocking to this place to look at a, a, a coffin with a flag. And personally, I could be wrong, but I don't really think the queen is in that coffin because it doesn't make any sense to me that they would leave her body in a closed coffin for four days or five days in, the, in, in this room. Uh, that doesn't make sense to me. So I don't know if she's in there or not, but people are coming and they're lining up for hours at a time and they're bowing over there. worshiping a woman that they never knew. They don't know what she was really like. They never met her, really. She was just a figurehead for them. And uh, so they don't really know. She, she was their queen. And she certainly lived like a queen. And her children lived like princes and princesses all supported by the public. <laughs> so who knows how long it's going to last. I don't, I don't think that he'll lose his kingship, but, but uh, the public will probably not. Some of these countries, like Wales and Ireland, might not want to be under Charles. They might not want the monarchy in some of these other countries that they rule over might not want to keep the monarchy. I, I think we'll see a lot, see a lot more of that in the days ahead. But we know also that Charles is a globalist. He, if you listen to some of his, these audios, and I'll, I'll play some, he comes out in favor of the Great Reset. Yes. And he even uses the phrase, build back better. Now, where have we heard that? <laughs> so you see how all these people are, are entwined with each other, with their globalist ideas, and their ideas that we no longer can have fossil fuel, which we would probably never run out of, because remember, the earth was destroyed by a flood at one point. And what did, what did that do? It created fossils. 
And that's where fossil fuel comes from. So they're never going to run out of fossil fuel. But all of a sudden, there's a crisis. So we have to change. We have to reset everything. And we have to go to electric cars, electric everything. I don't know how they intend to produce this electricity. You can see the damage that these windmills are doing to wildlife. They're killing thousands of birds. It's not just a conspiracy theory. It's real. And how do they intend to generate enough electricity? They can't even generate enough electricity now in California. They were telling people to turn off their electricity. So how are they going to be able to charge up their cars? And then you have to go. They can only go about 200 miles or so at at this point. And then you have to stop and look for a charging station. And it takes time to charge these things up. It's one big hassle. But they're determined to do it, to uh, change the way we live, to force us to buy new cars that cost twice as much as the cars that we're already driving, and Charles is a globalist. He is for the Great Reset. The COVID-19 pandemic has shown us just how devastating a global cross-border threat can be. Climate change and biodiversity loss are no different. In fact, they pose an even greater existential threat to the extent that we have to put ourselves on what might be called a warlike footing. Having myself had the opportunity of consulting many of you over these past 18 months, I know you all carry a heavy burden on your shoulders, and you do not need me to tell you that the eyes and hopes of the world are upon you. To act with all dispatch and decisively, because time has quite literally run out. The recent IPCC report gave us a clear diagnosis of the scale of the problem. We know what we must do. With a growing global population creating ever-increasing demand on the planet's finite resources, we have to reduce emissions urgently and take action to tackle the carbon already in the atmosphere including from coal-fired power stations. Putting a value on carbon, thus making carbon capture solutions more economical, is therefore absolutely critical. Similarly, after billions of years of evolution, nature is our best teacher. In this regard, restoring natural capital, accelerating nature-based solutions, and leveraging the circular bioeconomy will be vital to our efforts. As we tackle this crisis, our efforts cannot be a series of independent initiatives running in parallel. The scale and scope of the threat we face call for a global systems-level solution based on radically transforming our current fossil fuel-based economy to one that is genuinely renewable and sustainable. So, ladies and gentlemen, my plea today is for countries to come together to create the environment that enables every sector of industry to take the action required. We know this will take trillions, not 
billions of dollars. We also know that countries, many of whom are burdened by growing levels of debt, simply cannot afford to go green. Here we need a vast military-style campaign to marshal the strength of the global private sector. With trillions at its disposal, far beyond global GDP, and with the greatest respect, beyond even the governments of the world's leaders, it offers the only real prospect of achieving fundamental economic transition. Yeah, here's the new head of the Church of England saying that after billions of years of evolution, <laughs> I guess Charles believes that we came from apes. Now that, that's a stretch right there, isn't it? <laughs> oh, dear. No, human beings have always been intelligent. God didn't create people, and they came from an ape. When I went to the zoo, and I saw a gorilla, and I looked at that gorilla, I didn't say to myself, that's my relative, because the gorilla was still a gorilla. He did not evolve from that gorilla and, and uh, turn into a human. <laughs> and when I was growing up, we were never taught about evolution in school. I was in high school in the 60s, in the early 1960s. And then when I went to college, I took a biology class because I was, took liberal arts because I didn't know what I wanted to, wanted to do with my life. But and so I had a biology class, and in my biology class, my professor told me, for the first time in my life, I heard that I came from an ape. <laughs> oh. And I was, I was paying for that education. <laughs> but no, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and we don't come from apes. And here's the new ruler of the United Kingdom, the king saying that we evolved over billions of years, and now we must save the planet and spend trillions of dollars to convert and not use any more fossil fuel. Oh, dear. God help us. But here's some of the countries that they rule over. Belize, Canada, Grenada, Jamaica, it's called the Commonwealth Realm. Australia, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, St. Kitts and Nevis, St. Lucia, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, Solomon Islands, United Kingdom. Those are some of the countries that the monarch rules over, all are members of the Commonwealth, which is an organization of 56 independent member states, 52 of which were formerly a part of the British Empire. All Commonwealth members are independent sovereign states. But some of these are part of the realm of the of. Uh, the monarchy, which Charles will reign over, but we'll see how long that, that goes on. 
we'll see. We have our, our own political situation here in this country. We don't know what the next election will hold for the country. We don't know if we will ever have a fair election again in this country. It all remains to be seen, really. I think, remember back when uh, Bush-Gore, the Bush-Gore election, and they announced that Bush had won the election. And not soon after, Gore contested it. And it went on for, what, a month or two months or so before we knew who the president was going to be. It was okay for him to contest the election. And it was in and out of court, and finally the Supreme Court had to make a decision. So these kind of things go on. I, I think after the 2020 election, it came out that there was so much fraud involved in the process, which there probably always has been a lot of fraud going on. And it wasn't properly investigated. So we didn't hear about it so much. We heard about it here and there. But I think after the 2020 election, it, it came to light that there was so much fraud going on. And you can see how they can manipulate public opinion and they can stuff ballot boxes. There's all, and uh, there was... Now, this was true, and I probably maybe next time play this interview. There was a man that invented the software program, and he invented it for the government. It was They asked him to do it. It was, I don't think it was meant at the time to uh, flip votes on voting machines. But anyway, he invented the software program where they could actually flip the votes on a voting machine. And he was being interviewed on television by a credible source. He wasn't a Republican. He was a Democrat. And he said that especially if the election was 51-49, that would be very questionable in some instances of how this, they could have this software that could flip votes. So these kind of things do go on. And he never, when he was making the software, he never intended it to be used fraudulently. And uh, anyway, like I said, I will try to get that audio for you and play some of that interview. It was very interesting. So there's all kinds of things that can go on, and it probably goes on on both sides. I'm not saying one side or the other. Of course, we can see now, though, that there is a push on one side that they they look more uh, demonic. <laughs> there, are, there are some good people that run for public office and there are some really bad people that run for public office. And so we have to know who we're voting for. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. But one thing that we do know as Christians that we have a king of kings and a lord of lords, and he, his government is righteousness, peace, and joy. And he's never going to leave us or forsake us. And no matter what goes on in the world, we have a king, King Jesus. 
And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So maybe you don't know Jesus Christ today as your Lord and Savior. Ask him to come into your life. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. He can give you peace no matter what's going on in the world today. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.8, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10.13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord today if you don't know him. Let him give you real peace and real joy you can't get from anyone else. God bless you all today. Thank you all for tuning in, all my listeners around the world. I appreciate you so very much. And don't forget that we'll be switching over to Spreaker. And if you want to contact me, contact me, Susan, at propheticnews.com. God bless you. We'll see you next week. be